They didn't let us do our cover the way we wanted to do it originally, man. We got a photographer, went outside, and we had jewels and shit on. Cause that's hip hop, that's the 80s. You guys look like drug dealers. That's not really nice and smooth. Here it comes. Hey, here it comes. You're listening to Fresh Era, where we tell stories of the legends from the golden era of hip hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deeper into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith, and today we walk through the life and career of Smooth B from the legendary duo Nice and Smooth. Along with his partner, Greg Nice, they made fun and groovy records that landed them on the charts and in the hearts of hip-hop fans around the world. Smooth B's career came equipped with ups and downs, from tragedy to being collateral damage in a corporate bankruptcy, and ultimately to redemption. Smooth B, born Daryl Barnes in 1965, was raised in the late 60s and throughout the 70s in the cradle of hip-hop, the Bronx. New York and then the Bronx in the 70s was like damn near like Beirut. Abandoned buildings, you know, a lot of rubble. The average apartment didn't have hot water regularly. You know, it was, it was just a trip. But, you know, I didn't know I was impoverished because they always had a way of providing. His parents had to take care of their five boys. So his mom worked in social services and his father was a truck driver with some musical talent. He played the guitar. He sung in the church, but he was a truck driver, you know, and he passed when I was nine. His passing meant that Smooth B's mother would have to step into the role of sole provider. So my mom's was tough love, and so by the time I came along, she was convinced that she was going to get it right. Smooth B was the youngest of five, and with the tragic loss of his father, his older brother stepped up to help mold him. My two older brothers always had legal jobs, and then I have a set of twins. And those two, they were street scientists. They were famous on the street. It was like I had a, a constant example of how you could do it legally and how you could do it illegally. This would give him the street smarts and insight into the world around him, but he also received another style of training. We grew up close-knit with this box. He was a famous boxer, and he ended up fighting Muhammad Ali, and his name was Doug Jones. In white trunks, Cassius Clay. In the black trunks, waiting to come out, Doug Jones, who is ranked third. He was like an uncle, so he taught all my brothers how to box. So for me, growing up was like fucking Sparta. My brothers were determined to get me beefed up. These motherfuckers is doing preachers sit-ups and chin-ups, and they was like, no weakness. And this was preparation for the wild world of Catholic school. It was St. Augustine, wild over there. And you would think that since it was a Catholic school, you know what I'm saying, it wouldn't be wild. That was one of the fucking wildest schools in the world. Motherfuckers smacked me in the back of the head. Yo, what the fuck? And then when I'd go to approach him or whatever, it seemed like the teacher only saw me. So I kept getting fucked up with the ruler. Then I got to stay after school and say, I will behave a hundred fucking times. And his troubles at school were starting to complicate things at home. So my brother Charles, he would pick me up after school. So my brothers used to be like, I got X amount of time to get me a little shorty up in the house, do my thing, get him out before mom get home. So me staying after school is fucking with the schedule. But it was these two bullies. One name was Alfred and one name was Lewis. They used to fuck me every day, right? So I told my brother. So my brothers, when they taught me how to box and martial arts, they said, look, we're going to teach you how to defend yourself. Insert Rocky montage and... When my brothers got me on my shit, I beat up Alfred and Lewis at the same time. 
And soon, that self-defense turned into a problem that got him sent to public school. I started whipping asses in there. Around the same time, hip-hop was starting to form in his neighborhood. But as a kid, he only knew what was playing in the house. Stevie Wonder, Barry White, Isaac Hayes, uh, the Stylistics, Blue Magic, Motown Sound, all of that, Supremes, all of that shit, man. Those influences in his house, he started to sing and quickly gained an audience at home. Back then, I had a high-pitched voice, so I used to sing like the Stylistics records. So my brothers, they heard me singing one day. I said, come here, dear, you can sing? I like, yeah. They was like, yo, you sound like the fucking record. Wait till my shorty come over. Hey, yo, come here, come here, Debbie. Sing for Start singing this shit. <laughs> now go give him some pussy. It seemed like every time we moved, we moved to a different area of the Bronx where hip hop was prevalent. The thing was, I always loved to sing, but when hip hop hit and artists like Melly Mel, Curtis Blow, all these motherfuckers started making records, and at the same time, being visible in my hood. My mom used to have me watching motherfucking Dr. Seuss. And his rhyming and shit, you know, used to bug me out. And that's what made me fascinated with words that rhyme. And so when they came out and they started making these rap records, it was easy, but I didn't have the voice. So so back then I was a kid, so they were like, Miller Bell or Curtis Blow. You know, and I was like, oh shit, they grown ass men. And being able to see these guys carried an inspiration that wasn't just wishful thinking. It was tangible. The first time I saw Grandmaster Flash, I was about 10 years old. And I saw Grandmaster Flash battle Cool Herc. It was a high school schoolyard. At the time, he wasn't Grandmaster Flash, he was DJ Flash. And the homeboy was DJ Herc. That shit just was crazy. They threw on like Apache and And the shit is so loud with the speakers, it's echoing off of the buildings. I'm watching Flash. He had a t-shirt on, but he had muscles. And then I see Herc, Herc was yoked. And I was like, wow, who the fuck are these guys? Like some fucking musical superheroes, you know what I'm saying? And it wasn't just the DJ. So I just see two dudes on the floor. And I'm like, what the fuck are they doing? And he's like, yo, that's called b-boying, man. They breaking. We look back on it now as hip hop lore. Something that will never be forgotten nor happen again, but. Those people that knew about Flash and them, we're just coming to have a good time. Cause it was like, they're jamming, but it was special. I think that the people that recognized how special it was, were the artists. Because it touched you on a frequency that was different. Some people just came to party, some people came to learn. You know what I'm saying? When I came, I felt that shit, and I just was like, this shit is incredible. Like, I wanna do that. And with a little finessing, he convinced his mom to buy him a turntable so that he could try to become a DJ. This lasted up until he saw MCs rhyming in person at a nightclub called The Sparkle. But he was still a kid, so his invitation to The Sparkle came through a chance encounter while hustling throughout the summer. One of my boys, his name is Peanut. Peanut used to wash car windows on the Cross Bronx Expressway. That was his little hustle. So one day, there was this game room. So I'm in there fucking with the pinball and playing pinball. And Peanut walked up in that motherfucker with like a, a shopping bag full of quarters and coins and shit. It was $50. Homeboy goes in the back, get him 50. Peanut reached in his pocket and it had a knot. I said, what? How can I be down? So now, I'm washing cars with Peanut. And on one particularly hot day, a guy named Armstrong walked up to the pair with a proposition. He said, uh, this is my club, Sparkle, right? 
I'm saying, y'all want to make $25 each? Doing what? Clean the motherfucker out. He said, I tell you what, I got $25 a piece for y'all and some White Castle burgers. And to show further appreciation, Armstrong offered to let them into the club that night. They showed up, and that's when a 14-year-old Smooth B saw rhyming live and in person. It was these cats called the L Brothers. If I'm like 13, they had to be about 17. But their presence and the way they was rhyming and holding the mic, their, their finesse was so crazy. And I saw firsthand the reaction of the girls. I said, this is some shit I think I want to do. His appetite for hip-hop had reached a new high, and it was only a matter of time before he would get to showcase his skills. This is the part of the story where young Daryl starts to become Young Smooth B, and he's about to go down a road that leads to fame, recognition, friendship with a pop megastar, and some major setbacks when we come back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Let me clear my throat. I am the legendary DJ Cool, and I'm here to tell you about a new Stupid Fly podcast I'm on called Headspin, the classic hip-hop trivia gamecast. Headspin! Come listen as two golden era gladiators compete head-to-head to see who will be victorious in their knowledge of completely useless hip-hop trivia. Headspin! The winner will go home with cold hard cash, while the loser will be forced to spin the dreaded hip-hop wheel of consequences. Has been premieres June 30th with new episodes every Wednesday after. Make sure to subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow at Hespin Game Show to get in on the action. Hespin, the only classic hip-hop game cast. At this point in Smooth B's life, he had experienced hip-hop up close and personal, watching Grandmaster Flash and DJ Cool Herc jam in the park, then watching the L Brothers on the mic at the Sparkle. Junior high school, everybody knew the hip-hop, and people started enlightening me, like, yo, you heard this tape, you heard this, you heard that. And he wanted to become an MC, but he still had some reservations. I had the rhythm, I had the desire. But to me, I didn't have the voice. Regardless, as a senior in high school, he found himself in position to display his rhyming ability for the public at a talent contest during a school field trip. It was Rye Playland, and I formed a crew. And it was me, this guy named Little G, Gabriel Gonzalez, my other man, Kerry Frazier. We call him Cab. He was from Brooklyn. They called themselves the money-making four. I had my shit together. Everybody had their flow together, but to us... Little G was the best. We would give him more of the bulk of the routines because he has so much shit. So the time came for the Money Making Four to get on stage in front of not just their classmates, but the girls from the neighboring all-girls school and other New York seniors. This was their moment to shine and potentially take home $100. For a senior in high school in the 80s, this could be a lot of pressure. Too much pressure for their front man, Little G. And he was like, I can't do it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I can't do it, D. I can't do it, man. I'm scared. All right, no, 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 come here. 
consequences. I said, you got this shit. Little G, look at me, man. You got it, baby. But Little G wasn't convinced. He snatched himself away from Smooth and ran. And when I turned around, I told Cab and I told the other team, I said, all right, look, uh, Lil' G just checked out. We're going to rock this motherfucker. They was like, how we going to rock without Lil' G? The people don't know he missing. He just ran. So we're not going to worry about his fucking rhyme because we can't say his fucking rhyme. All right, fuck it. And we did it. They had written to a song called Nautilus by the incomparable Bob James. <laughs> and that was when I first wrote this rhyme. And I said, I got the magical voice you never thought existed. Telephone numbers, they're unlisted. Pierre called Dan in the palm of my hand. And we won. This was the confidence he needed. From this moment on, he was a rapper. And once he graduated from high school and went out into the world... Everything that I got involved with, I wanted to make enough money to invest in music. So I did construction. I became a security guard. He was in hot pursuit of creating the music he loved and sweeping the girls off their feet. But that was easier said than done. As soon as I tell a chick I was an MC. MC what? No, no, I'm going to make records. So what, you going to quit UPS? You know, because at that time, I got UPS jobs and all that. I was like, I mean, well, eventually I'm going to quit UPS, bitch. Smooth B realized quickly that this was going to be a marathon, not a sprint. People couldn't yet wrap their heads around someone saying they wanted to become a rapper and pursue it as a career, including his family. His mother didn't really understand it, and his brothers who were on their feet with good jobs were already charting a path for him. His eldest brother, Michael, who was an electrical engineer, had set it up so that... When I came out of high school, since I was t- learning a trade, he could get me a job. You talk about it, 1983, making $16 an hour. Nah, I'm going to do my music. And he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You going to chase a fucking fantasy? Dude, I admire you. You're my big brother. But what I'm saying to you is... I know myself. And he knew that if he got the safe, secure job, he might not press toward building his own dream of becoming an artist. The first step would be for him to record a demo. The first real demo I made was by this guy. His name was Wizkid. Wizkid had made a name for himself by releasing a record called Play That Beat. Smooth B's friend Kevin introduced the two and it was off to the races. Just kidding. Just like Smooth B's attempts to impress the ladies with his musical ambition, this was going to be harder than he anticipated. Kev brings me to his house. He comes to the door and shit. This motherfucker had on a, uh, uh, a wife beater, the wife beater t-shirt, with some nunchucks around his neck, and some Chinese pants, and, and some Chinese slippers, like he was Bruce Lee and shit, like he was in the Bruce Lee bag. I really came there to meet him, but I'm hoping I could hear some beats or something. Motherfucker played no beats for me. I'm like, yeah, man, I could rhyme, man. I could bust some shit for you. I could rhyme right now. He's like, hmm. He get up and walk out the fucking room. Stay in the fucking room for about an hour. He come back with a baby in his hand. How about y'all come back tomorrow? I come back to his house. He start the karate shit again. So he, he fucking with me like, karate master like. I came to Wizkid house like five times. The next time I came, the fifth time, he was demoing somebody. Next thing you know, when this motherfucker finished, I said, I'm gonna be able to get on the mic. His wife comes out the room. His wife is in the singing group. And they start rapping. And I'm saying, yo, dude, I look and it's dark outside. I'm telling my brother Charles, my brother Charles is no nonsense, you know what I'm saying? So every time I go to make a fucking demo, I come back, yo, you made the demo? Nah, man. 
M, what the fuck is up, man? Let me go see that nigga, man. I was like, nah, 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 don't fuck up my bag, man. And his brother Charles wasn't the only one upset about this. Smooth B and WizKid had a mutual friend, Bernard, who wasn't taking it lightly. So one day we was having a conversation, and Bernard said, yo, so what the fuck is up with the demo, man? And I was like, nah, every time I go to this nigga WizKid's house, he doing, like, doing me like a fucking kung fu master. He said, what? Nah, fuck that. Tomorrow you gonna make your demo. I don't know what he said to WizKid. Next time he gonna call me up. And the next day, that demo got made. <laughs> that kung fu shit went out the window. Then Whiskey heard me rhyme, and he was like, you dope! And with the demo in hand, he had something he could actually play for people. Simultaneously, he made the decision to pursue a new line of work as a messenger. I need a job that could give me a little decent pay, but where I could have freedom to just move around. And I only imagined, you know, like, like I was like, Who's your boss when you're out there delivering a package? No one. You! So he started his career as a messenger while staying in his brother's basement. He had independence and a clear goal. He wanted to turn his dream of a career in music into a reality and kept that energy all around him. Like, on my wall at that time, I had a new edition poster, Curtis Blow, Rick James, Cameo. So I had all these different posters in my room. One day I got up, come, I come to the glass, and I see rain. I walked back in the house. And when I woke up, I just didn't feel like going to work that day. So I come back in and I literally sit on the bed and I was like, fuck this shit. You know what? I'm getting tired of this shit. Shit ain't happening fast enough. And I'm just basically having me a little quick, quiet talk with God. <laughs> I'm tired of this shit. Something gotta give. And then I hear, go to work, motherfucker. You gotta go. Today, you gotta go. So he got up, went to work, and the rain stopped. I'm coming up 7th Avenue. It starts to rain again. So rather than pull a poncho back out, I goes in this famous Ray's Pizza. I'm sitting in there eating a slice. I look out the window, and I see this guy, Mixmaster Ice. Before that, I was introduced to Mixmaster Ice from another guy named DJ Holiday. And Mixmaster Ice is the DJ of UTFO. The group famous for Roxanne, Roxanne. Roxanne, Roxanne. I walk up. I go, yo, what's up, dude? We start talking. He said, what you doing? I said, I told you I'm messing. He said, oh, wow. oh, shit, that's right. I said, yeah. I said, what you doing? He said, I'm waiting for Bobby Brown. Now, Bobby Brown had just left New Edition. So Bobby walks up at that moment. And remember, he's got a New Edition poster on his wall in his room. Talk about the law of attraction. I'm looking at this motherfucker every day. And the shit was kind of like deja vu-ish because it just felt like I knew him. It was weird. And Mixmaster Ice starts to tell him, yo, this dude is an MC from the Bronx. He is... Dope. And so Bobby goes, what? So you coming to the studio with us? Oh, nah, I, I can't. He's like, why? I said, I'm on the clock. And he said, on the clock? I said, yeah, I'm a messenger. Come fuck with us later on, man. I want to hear you. I want to hear you rhyme. Later on, I came through there. You know what I'm saying? I start rhyming for him the whole nine yards. I brought my demo from WizKid. And then he was like, do you have a producer? And I was like, the fuck is a producer? I was like, no. I'm going to be a producer. And then after that, we started rocking. Next thing I had, went to a session with him. Uh, Dr. Ice from UTFO had started writing a song for him. So I ended up finishing that song and writing four more for him. He took me, ended up taking me on the road. 1986, he brought me out to California. I lived with him for a year, you know, and we became boys. I was his background singer, his valet, his bitch getter after the show. Seemingly overnight, Smooth B's life changed forever. And from 1986 to 1988, 
Smooth B was on and off the road with Bobby Brown. So now I'm getting I'm getting exposed to the world. I'm traveling with him and we running around. And this time with Bobby Brown definitely broadened his perspective. When it came to his own music, there was a new sound bubbling out of New York that would help define his sound and his career. There was a fucking renaissance happening. Like Rakim and Karis One and all these motherfuckers was coming out of New York. And everybody was sampling James Brown and all of that. And New Edition, them niggas had some dope-ass musicians around them, but they were a band. So Bobby wanted to produce me, but he wanted a band to play for me. And I was like, mm, that bland shit ain't working, baby. We got to take that shit off the bracket. Now I don't know how they doing that shit. And unless you were a producer at the time, this new style of production was foreign. Smooth B came off the road for a break with a guy named Lance Romance, who was a member of the team on tour with Bobby Brown. He said, I was listening to you the other day when he was talking about the band, and I know exactly what you're talking about. He said, motherfuckers is taking the sounds directly off the records. He said, that's called sampling. And I know a motherfucker that know how to sample. Young kid, man. He's dope. I was like, yeah. And he was like, his name is Greg. I'm introduced to him. Next day, sure enough, the motherfucker comes, picks me up, brings me to the hood. We go to his house. And he had Greg and his brother named June Love meet us there. And June Love and Greg were in a group. We started vibing. And Greg started doing the human beatbox. And me and June just started rocking. And their chemistry was incredible. Smooth B and June Love both had an affinity for melodies that they could marry with their rap verses. Long before singing and rapping were interchangeable, this was their style. They spent hours trading rhymes and talking about ideas for songs. And I had four or five days off before I was going back on the road with Bobby. So June was like, yo, we should be a group. Nah, 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 I'm solo, man. I'm on some solo shit, but I'll do songs with y'all because y'all motherfuckers are special. I said, all right, bet. And then like two weeks later, June Love got murdered. I don't know this. So by the time I come off the road, Greg pops in my head, I'm him and June. I'm like, let me, let me check on these dudes. And so I called Greg's house and his mom picked up the phone and she said, I said, how you doing, Miss Mays? How are you? Is it smooth? She said, hey, how you doing, smooth? And I was like, all right. I said, Greg there? She's like, no, he's probably downstairs in front of the building. You heard about June? No, what happened? She's like, June got murdered. I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I said, I'm coming right now. Smooth B scrambled over to console his friend. He was like, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. Motherfuckers killed June and all like this. He was out of it. I said, you know what's crazy? I said, the last note we left on, I told him that one day we would do a record together. He said, yeah. I said, what was the last song y'all did together? And he said, um, a joint named Skill Trade. I said, I go. And he was like, together we cool and the mic we ruling. Suckers was schooling and you better stop booing. Skill Trade, we know what we doing. I said, that's dope. I like that. I said, we're going to do that shit together. And he's like, I don't rhyme. I said, you're the only one that knows June Love's rhymes and his style. If not, he dies in vain. I said, so what we do is whatever rhyme that you know that he said, you say it. And then I'm going to fill in the blanks. I'm saying that Greg is going, yeah, and I know people that press shit up. I was like, all right, bet, let's get it done. Smooth B had managed to convince Greg Nice to become an MC using the late June Love as inspiration. They didn't know it yet, but they were about to become something special, not just to themselves, but to the culture. They were about to create some classic music, get a record deal, and watch their notoriety go up and everything fall apart. Stay tuned.
Listen, nobody cares when the War of 1812 was fought or how many states there are in the U.S. We all know that there are 52, I think. What we really care about is which famous gangster rapper actually started as a backup dancer or how many ladies per capita love Cool James. This is Magic Most, host of the new classic hip-hop gamecast, Headspin, brought to you by Stupid Fly. Our first show launches on Wednesday, June 30th, but you can subscribe today. Headspin, the world's first and greatest golden era hip-hop gamecast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. After the tragic death of their friend June Love, Smooth B convinced Greg Nice to honor him by taking up the mantle of MC, and together they will become a group. Greg didn't rhyme, so he used to be like, we should be called Smooth and Nice. I said, no, Nice and Smooth has a better ring. They were unique, fun, and had a blend of MC skills and melody that were before their time. With that, they started recording demos for songs Skill Trade, Together we Coolin' the Dope on a Rope, And gold. With these demos in hand, they started to ideate on securing a record deal. But the thing that made them unique, their singing and rapping, also made it hard for people to understand their potential. We would go to these different labels, and all the labels would shut us down because our style was so different. Oh, no, we don't know about this routine shit you guys are trying to do. So in the meantime, Greg Nice had been appearing with original Def Jam MC Tila Rock as a human beatbox. Tila Rock at the time was signed to Fresh Records, a subsidiary of Sleeping Bag Records. One day it was like a light bulb when he was like, yo, smooth man, fuck that, man. Let's go, let's go to Sleeping Bag, man. Let's see what's up. So I said, all right, he said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go hang out with Tila Rock. Greg was in the in the limo with Tila Rock and with the president, vice president, whatever. And so he plays uh, what we was doing. He plays Skill Trade and Dope on the Rope and Go. And they, and, and they were like, what the fuck? Who is that? And he was like, that's me. And it was like, who the fuck is that you rhyming with? His name is Smooth B, man. That's our new group, man. Given the relationship with Greg Nice and Tila Rock and the undeniable skill of Nice and Smooth, the executives at Sleeping Bag Records knew they were too good to pass up. They offered them a deal and expected them to sign right away. But You know, you got to remember, we came from the Bronx. And so back then, you hear things and you and you soak up game. You know what I'm saying? So one thing we wanted to do back then was dot our I's and cross our T's. We were diligent. They were trying to negotiate better terms for a deal, which seems like common sense, but that's not how it goes in most cases. We came in there on some, well, we're going we're gonna to really get a lawyer. Like back then, they give artists contracts and say, go get a lawyer. And then the next day, the artists come and sign. And the label, they were looking at us like, are you fucking serious? Sign the fucking paper already. So we finally, you know, we, we, we inked the deal. And now they were on the same label as Tila Rock, Just Ice, Mantronics, and EPMD was our label mate. Relax your mind, let your constantly be free and get down to the sounds of EPMD. We were actually in the process before EPMD, but they handled they, they handled their shit, signed and did what they had to do. Next year, our motherfuckers was out before us. Contractually, we were owed a dollar per album. And in 1989, Motherfuckers wasn't getting no dollar contractually. So they shelved us for a year. Oh my God, I was fucking unnerved, disgusted, 
While in this process, Smooth B met a young lady named Keisha, a singer with an R&B group called Modesty. The two hit it off as friends and eventually decided to date. Then they got married. This was a high point as all of his childhood dreams were coming true. This didn't mean that things were smooth sailing, no pun intended. Their album was finished and they were ready to release after a year of being placed on the shelf. But even then, there was a conflict. They didn't let us do our cover the way we wanted to do it originally, man. We got a photographer, went outside, and we had jewels and shit on. Because that's hip-hop. That's the 80s. But when they showed the head of Fresh Records what they came up with... You guys look like drug dealers. I was like, what? You guys look like drug dealers. That's not really nice and smooth. No, 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 no. We're going to get you a... uh, We're going to do it in a studio. We're going to make better pictures. So instead of jewelry and cars on their album cover like their label mates EPMD, they opted for a more sanitary, on-the-nose cover featuring the guys in colorful clothes and bowler hats. Finally, they put our shit out, man, and motherfuckers went crazy, man. And they loved it. Nice and Smooth's self-titled debut album was released in the spring of 1989. They were a hit on radio and TV with their hit, Funky For You. Days like Spike Lee, Smooth B. My mom's hit better with time. The single came equipped with a music video directed by Fab Five Freddy and support from New York radio host Marley Marl. I was sitting in the crib on 183rd and Webster Avenue in the projects with my G. He and his wife Keisha were listening to the radio and... He said, yo, y'all gotta hear this nice and smooth album, man. This shit is insane. He put the needle on and let the whole motherfucker play, dude. I was like, yo, Keisha, he playing the whole shit. He playing the whole shit. We just sat there. And so now we roll. We get uh, funky for you in rotation. I get my wife pregnant. So now I'm happy. I'm, I'm calculating. I'm almost gold. So we're like, it's about royalty time. Let's find out about this certification. And go down to Sleeping Bag. Again, Sleeping Bag Records was the parent company of their label, Fresh Records. We come off the elevator. <laughs> the vice president is in the hallway, sitting on the steps with his phone and the wire... It's coming from under the door where the office is closed and there's tape. Is shit closed for renovation or something? He goes, uh, everything's going to be all right, guys. But as you can probably guess, things weren't going to be all right. They uh, filed bankruptcy. They, they were shut down. IRS shut them down. And as far as the calculations he had been making about his royalties from their album sales... I never got royalties. Luckily, he still had the support of his family. His brother stepped in to help when everything was falling apart. They knew the scenario, and so they would just keep me fresh and give me bread to move around and shit like that and just try to encourage me to hold my head. And so they were really proud of me. They were like, yo, you did it. You know what I'm saying? You in record stores now. You know what I'm saying? We don't understand this fucking music industry. You need us to run up in there with them things, get your money. And I was like, I'm trying to stay out of jail, fellas. You know what I'm saying? Like, we got to figure this thing out. You know what I'm saying? It's got to be a loophole. Like, fuck that loophole. But against his brother's hostile negotiation strategy, there actually was a loophole. A loophole that only existed because they did the hard work of negotiating their contracts. They took those contracts to a lawyer to figure out what options they had. And he was like, you know, you have a bankruptcy clause in there. What are you talking about? He said, you have a bankruptcy clause. <laughs> That's one of the only things that they agreed to. Now, let me tell you what that says. Because you have a bankruptcy clause, you're entitled to retain 100% of your publishing. 
I said, is that right? And he was like, look, man, I'm telling you something. You guys are fucking smoking hot. You know, it's going to be just a matter of time. Somebody will pick you up. You know what I'm saying? Just go back in there and make some more music. But Smooth B wasn't having it. I'm in my fucking 20s. My, my, my brain is fucked up. I'm mad. Like, I'm going through so many changes of emotions. And at that time, Greg used to go to all the clubs. And he was like, Smooth, you got to hear our shit. Yo, they playing in the club. I'm in the crib like, fuck them clubs. His life was such a far cry from the attention and popularity of the album that every time he heard the songs, it would sting. This is killing me here, my shit. You know, this is killing, I can't do it with you, bro. But one night, Greg Nice called him up to invite him out one more time. You gotta come with me. Come out tonight with me. I'm tired. Every time I go in the motherfucker, they're like, where you man, where you man, where you man? And I was like, all right. He said, and we gotta put our suits on. All right. So he throw the suits on, brims, cigars and shit. And, and I was seeing different people and I saw a cane and I'm seeing Cool G, I'm seeing my people. And, and like they're celebrating with me just like, what you drinking? Not knowing I ain't got no fucking money to buy a drink. And then the next thing you know, fucking Russell Simmons walks up to us in the club that night. And he goes, hey, yo, yo, y'all them nice smooth niggas, right? And I'm like, what's up, man? I like y'all niggas, man. My brother Joey was riding around today playing y'all shit for me, man. I'ma buy y'all out y'all motherfucking contract. Y'all the EPMD, all right? Yo, get their numbers. So I'm just like, is this nigga drunk? You know what I'm saying? But he wasn't. He was serious. The next day, Russell Simmons' right-hand man pulls up and takes Nice and Smooth out for a meal to discuss their future. We ordering steak and lobster and shit like that. He's like, order whatever you want, man. He's like, yo, Russ is real serious, man. So he says, y'all just got to go in and make some more fire shit. And that is what put the fucking battery in my back. I was like, let's go. You know, now Greg is pumped, so he's just making beats. Yo, Smooth, check this one out. Check this one out. By this time, Smooth B was living with his family in New Jersey and was commuting to the Bronx every day to collaborate with Greg Nice on new music. I'm coming home on the bath train, and I get off at Journal Square. And when I get off at Journal Square, there's a Sam Goody record store. They had a 99 cent bin, and I see songs from the 60s. And when I get to the crib, I'm listening to this shit, and this shit comes on. I think I love you. Wifey in the kitchen making some spaghetti and shit. I'm like, yo, kid, you remember this shit? She's like, yeah, babe. So I'm listening to the fucking song, and then about 20 minutes later, Greg knocks on the door. Yo, yo, yo. Smooth B gives him the cassette. I said, this song sounds crazy. Greg takes it next door where they had set up a space to produce with their bass player, Horace Fly. And a few minutes later... Smooth, smooth, come here, come here. You gotta hear this shit. I like that. And so he was like, yo, and I'm thinking, man, we should say something like funky in the hook, like like I got a funky rhyme or something. And motherfucking Horace Fly put that... And then the fucking kick a snap. Boom. Back. Boom. 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 Back. Back. The rickety rocket was my favorite cartoon. After marriage, the honeymoon. I'll be damned. Jack me with the spoon. Who loves Papa? Alistair Kill. Woo! And that was one down. They called this record Hip Hop Junkies. They were true to themselves and let their instincts guide them down creative pathways. This allowed them to surprise people. And they definitely surprised each other. One day, Greg pulls up. He in the whip and he's, he's blasting Tracy Chapman. Like, what the fuck you listening to, bro? Yo, Tracy Chapman, yo. She's dope. She's deep. Okay, so a couple of songs. I'm like, oh, she's interesting. So now, Fast Car comes on. 
But this is my shit, this is my favorite song. We should fuck with that guitar. I said, yeah, I like it. He's like, you feel it? You feel it? I should point out that while this is going on, they're smoking weed and zoning out to music. Greg Nice takes this sample and flips it. Shit called fast car, fuck it. Sometimes around slow, sometimes around quick. Huh? He's like, yeah, fuck it, let's call this shit. Because that's what we do. Not high talking. Smoke some more of this shit. Just, just fucking say it. Like I say, sometimes around slow, sometimes around quick. And then you go sometimes around slow, sometimes around Now, the deep part about it was, Greg does his rhyme first. And it's upbeat and it's like, sometimes around slow, sometimes around quick. I'm sweeter and thicker than a chico stick. But at that time, I think that song alone made me go introspective. Like, that was the first time I really went into myself to talk about shit I actually went through. Anything else, I was more or less into the character of Smooth B, having fun with that. I started just reflecting on my life, and I started thinking about relationships, and I was happy for the love that I was presently in, but I still got some issues in the past. So my rhyme was sometimes rhyme slow, I took three girls and made her one, Jane Doe. And I talked about the pain of those relationships. So I had one girl that fell victim to coke and all of that. And then I had one girl that crashed my car. Then I had one girl that I put so much into and I thought she was the one. Me and this girl, Jane Doe, was living together. We were inseparable, no one could sever. At least that's what I thought. But later I fought with a substance and almost ended up in Supreme Court. When I was on the road doing shows, getting ends, she was in my bins getting snippy with a friend. Nice and Smooth was on their way to making more hits. And the more they created, the more they leaned into their style of singing and rapping. With Def Jam on the horizon and inspiration all around, they had the whole world in front of them. But nothing was easy for Smooth B to this point, and it wasn't going to get any easier. Coming up, Russell Simmons has some not-so-unique critiques for Nice and Smooth that leave Smooth questioning things. They go on to spring break with some hip-hop heavyweights and guest feature on a hip-hop classic. Plus, an unbelievable story about a duel between Def Jam executive Lior Cohen and the hip-hop legend Q-Tip. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. After the record label Nice and Smooth was signed to, filed for bankruptcy, Smooth B was left feeling confused and exhausted. But Russell Simmons, true to his word, bought Nice and Smooth out of their record deal, which had been sold to Priority Records. 
They were now signed to Def Jam's umbrella label called Rush Associated Labels with their label mates EPMD and other legends like Onyx, Warren G, and J.O. Felony under the leadership of Lior Cohen. They were tasked with coming up with a follow-up album and were well on their way using their signature blend of singing and rapping. Together we are nice and smooth with dribbling harmony. In their first deal with Fresh Records, they faced some backlash from the executives about how well their style would work. Unfortunately, even though they were now signed to Def Jam, the pioneer of mainstream hip-hop, they faced the same battle with Russell Simmons. I don't know if the singing rapping shit is going to work. I'm like, well, motherfucker, use them same ears you had when you signed me, bitch. I think it was something that was about that difference that you liked. Fight! Break the record. Break your artists. Believe in them. And remember that whole thing at their first label about fashion being a problem? Well... Russell got on that same shit. When I did the song, Cake and Eat It Too. You can't have your cake and eat it too, girl. We shoot the video. I got on Armani, I had Versace, and in one little section of the shit, I had on some Carl Kanai. Man, Russell seen that motherfucker dissected that video like a fucking surgeon. All that designer shit, we taking that out. You fucking guys look like pimps. I was like, what is this, fucking deja vu? Nevertheless, they were starting to gain even more exposure with Def Jam, and the label leaned into their hip-hop crooner style. We went out on the road. It was us, Boys to Men, Jodeci, After 7, and they were mixing us in with the R&B motherfuckers. And that's how it should have been. It looked like they were on fire. They made appearances on Soul Train. And they are known as nice and smooth. In living color. So let's give it up for nice and smooth. Oh, yeah. And the whole world was about to get a taste of nice and smooth. Until Russell and them guys found out that we owned the publisher. So the motherfuckers were like, wait, we thought we bought the same sleeping bag deal. And Russell and them felt back then that we should just be happy and appreciative that they bought us out. Well, no, that shit is cool, but you guys are making fucking money. Now, if I'm getting $1 and you're getting $24 and I'm splitting my $1, I don't care. Make me another deal, baby. Come on. And this is happening when Smooth B and Greg Nice are working on their Def Jam album. This time was full of activity that kept them busy between recording, performing, and meetings. One of those meetings before the album was released turned out to be one for the ages. Nice and Smooth went to the Rush offices for a routine meeting and happened to find themselves in a room with A Tribe Called Quest and label executive Lior Cohen. Apparently, things had gone off the rails as Q-Tip and Cohen were definitely not talking about music anymore. They were talking about basketball. And specifically, who would win in a game of one-on-one. And they're starting to antagonize each other. Q-Tip, I could fucking beat you with my hands tied behind my back. You're nothing. Q-Tip, you're nothing. Tip is like, hey, what the fuck you talk about, Leo? I will wipe the streets with you, Tip. And he's going in. So these motherfuckers challenge each other to a duel. <laughs> they challenge each other to a basketball game, dog. Chip is like, now you got to go home and change. And he's like, this motherfucker Leo goes, oh, no, I'm fucking ready. He reached out to his fucking desk and had some boomers. Nice, smooth, come with us. Watch this. I am going to massacre this motherfucker. Before we leave his offices, he goes, I tell you what, Q-Tip, I'll bet you for five points on your album that I beat you by such and such. 
and Tip said bet. Go to the fucking park. Tip like six. Fucking Leo's damn near skyscraper. Tip started to shit his mojo, his handle. Tip coming down. He got happy. He tried to come in and just try to like take him to the hoop. Leo swung the shit. Somebody go get that ball. I mean, he smacked that shit. Not out here. Go get the fucking ball, Tip. Me and Greg looking at each other like, oh, shit. Everything else went crazy. I mean, Tip might have scored maybe twice after that. But it was like, Leo was snatching it out his hand. Yoking it. I was like, yo, what the fuck am I seeing? Then he started jaying. He couldn't fuck with, he couldn't fuck with Leo and Leo won, B. <laughs> and we were standing there like, oh, man. God, I thought he was playing for the culture. Before long, they had a product ready to go. And in the fall of 1991, Nice and Smooth released their sophomore album, Ain't a Damn Thing Changed. The album was received with praise and everything was headed in the right direction. Dope-ass tours. Fly shit. Traveling, all that shit. Five-star hotels. Oh! But they wasn't pushing the records in the certain markets for us to get the full numbers. So we had the full experience, but then we'll go gold. When, when, once we get ready to scratch platinum, well, that one didn't reach platinum. It seemed like the wariness of the label when it came to their style was affecting how many people were exposed to their music and videos. And then by the time sometimes Rob Slow, they could stop that motherfucker. That motherfucker went platinum like in five days. Oh, shit. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, let's go. You know. Their single, Sometimes I Rhyme Slow, the one with the Tracy Chapman sample, ended up being their biggest hit. The single landed at number one on the rap charts and earned a spot on Billboard's Hot 100. So they're calling us up, and they're like, look, guys, you're getting ready to do Spring Break. Spring Whoa. Break, Daytona Beach, 1992. For those who don't remember, MTV Spring Break was a massive televised week-long party headlined by bands singers and rappers down in Florida. The 1992 broadcast would go down in hip-hop history. They're not telling us that everybody is going to be there. Naughty by Nature, Tribe Called Quest, Onyx, Cypress Hill. Oh, my Salt Pepper's down there. So now we don't know that they got us all in one fucking hotel, B. We come in. We go to our room. When I come into the room, I can see the terrace and I can see the ocean. I know it's an ocean view. So I drop my shit off. I'm like, oh, bad. Open up the fucking curtains. I walk out on the terrace. And I hear, yeah, so what do you mean? And I was like, I fucking know that voice. I look off my terrace to the right and it's Rodney Dangerfield. And then it's, you know, Paulie Shaw comes on the terrace for me. And two badass bitches in baby suits come out. I said, Oh, shit. I see your man, I fucking love you, man. Ah. I see yo, my group is nice and smooth. So Paulie's like, I fucking know who you are, man. Now, when we go back downstairs, that's when I see everybody. I see Tretch in the lobby. Be real. Tip. So we just running from each other. We hugging this. What the fuck? Yo, what are you doing? When you perform it, tomorrow. When you perform it, tomorrow. That shit was like heaven. And the next day, not only did Nice and Smooth perform. They shared the stage with Cypress Hill. Black Sheep. Naughty by Nature. 
in a tribe called Quest. So now, let's get to Dwick, right? After the success of their second album, Nice and Smooth was on a roll. One day they got a call from DJ Premier of the duo Gangstar. Premier and his partner, the late MC Guru, had always indicated that they wanted to get Nice and Smooth on their album after Guru appeared on their song Down the Line. But getting started was going to be hilariously problematic. I started Greg smoking weed. And what would happen sometimes is he might call me on a Monday, but I'd see him Friday. So he hits me up. Yo, I got the cassette. The cassette tape with the instrumental for the Gangstar collaboration. I'm like, I bet. About six fucking weeks went by. I never got the tape. He calls me when it's when it's crunch time, and he's like, yo, Friday, we going in the studio to do the song. I said, yo, motherfucker, I, just, I still ain't hear the beat yet. So two days before the session with Gangstar, he finally gets the track. So now it's studio night. I hadn't finished my rhyme, but I'm a damn sure show up. Of course. They pull up to the fabled D&D Studios. I come in. We got a gang of weed. Some of our favorite people were there. Premier starts playing the instrumental. So I hear so... I pull out my little composition book. For a song like Dwick, all I need is the first line. Songs hit me different, but that particular song is such a groove. I don't get, the lyrics won't come to me right away. I like, I gotta fall into it. Now, mind you, in Primo's mind, he's thinking that I've had the track for as long as Greg. When Greg comes on, he comes on like a fucking monsoon. Greg Nash, Greg in a C-E, Domino Bass, so are we, we, rock for a fake. Woo! I'm like, yeah! He did this shit in one take. So now everybody's looking at me like, they excited like, you ready to go in there yet? Nah, I'm not finished writing. Let the beat play. Now I'm trying to think too hard. After a while, the rest of the guys leave to go grab some more weed, leaving just Smooth B and the audio engineer in the room. First I started getting frustrated. Because it wouldn't come. And some just said, relax, man. What was the last thing that Guru said to you? I literally saw Guru stand there. I pictured it in my mind. What do you want from the store? And I said, some Phillies. So when I come on, I go, yo, Keithy E. Keithy E was his original name before he called himself Guru. So I said, yo, Keithy E, I left my Philly at home. Do you have another? I want to get blunted, my brother. And right after that, now may I make a mark, then make a spark over this fat track. Or should I say dopey? Subtract. Delete. All of the wick whack that want to be abstract, but they lack the new knack that's coming from way, way back. Hey, yo, Premier, please pass that Buddha sack. You heard we quit? No way. Bullshit. I, I told, told you before, before we come, come back, back with, with more hits. hits. It shit just open. I just started laughing like, <laughs> all right, all right. I know what I'm going to say now. And since it was only smooth in the engineer, he wanted to play a prank on the guys once they got back. I said, I'm going to act like I'm asleep. So he turns it off. I stretch out across the motherfucking couch. Supreme comes in. Ah! Oh, man, come on. And then, then Greg's like, damn, man, come on. Guru, he like, he's tapping me. He's like, yo, smiles, smiles. Yeah, man, I got the Phillies. Yo, yo we're going to fuck with it tomorrow, smiles. Come on, man, get some rest. Oh, wait, they all was in the room. I said, play that shit for him. I left my Philly at home. Do you have another? I want to get blunted, my brother. <laughs> They just started screaming and shit. I was like, no, 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 chill, chill, let's do it again. The song, Dwick, short for Do What You Can, Kid, was included on Gangstar's 1994 album, Hard to Earn. The single itself was one of the top-selling songs that year and helped set up Nice and Smooth's third album, Jewel of the Nile. 
It was released in the summer of 1994 and peaked at number 66 on Billboard 200. After the third album on Def Jam, it was kind of like hiatus time. Between that time, I saw so much shit, man. Enough was enough, bro. I'd leave and one of my kids might be teething. When I get back, they're taking a couple of steps and got teeth in their mouth, man. Shit started bugging me out. You know, I was able to provide, though. You know, you start to think, you know, this music shit and entertainment and, and just doing what you love to do is just breathtaking. And then I started to say to myself, this is a fucking opportunity of a lifetime. Like, the shit that I'm, I'm embarking upon, 90% of the people may never see. I got to get involved. You know what I'm saying? I got to fucking be in the now. In hindsight, I think I did it, you know, the best I could. <laughs> but back then, you know, when you're younger and you're in your mid-20s and your early 30s, you know, a lot of times you could be hard on yourself. And aside from missing out on family, Smooth B noticed that things in the industry itself had started to change, with more and more mainstream hip-hop records being centered around drugs and violence. I noticed we would go to either go into a label or just talking to people, and people started literally saying shit to me like, uh, why don't you talk about shooting motherfuckers? And, you know, talk that shit, you creative smooth. Like, I had a couple of meetings when the motherfuckers were like, you know, you're very creative. Why don't you just put some of that creativity into shooting motherfuckers and all that? You see where, the, where it's going, smooth? I'm like, man, get the fuck away from me with that shit. What are you saying to me? You know what I mean? No matter what, he wouldn't let pressure from label executives or the changing landscape of music change who he was. He had always managed to persevere and go further despite the challenges. And when times were at their toughest, he was always reminded of his potential. When Sleeping Bag went out of business, man, it was tough on me. So one day I'll never forget, I'm sitting on my porch, man. I'm just sitting on the steps, like, just thinking to myself, like, what the fuck is my next move, you know? And my mom literally came on the fucking steps and she put a hand on my shoulder and I was, was like, my, she was like, let me tell you something. I am so proud of you. She said, it's just the beginning. She said, look how far you came. And I'm like, I went nowhere, man. I went in a fucking circle. You know what I'm saying? And she was like, nah, man. Dude, you came from speaking some shit out your mouth that nobody could imagine to putting it on a record? You're gonna do it, son. Smooth B, along with his partner Greg Nice, go down in history being ahead of their time with their mix of melody and rap. As of this recording, Smooth B lives in Los Angeles and is releasing new music. I'm sad to report that weeks before we sat down with Smooth B, his wife of 32 years, Keisha Barnes, passed away. Our thoughts are with the Barnes family. Fresh Era is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and polished by the one-of-a-kind DJ Cheap Shot. Chris Barnett makes the logistics look easy. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Music by The Math Club. Art designed by Mike Bonanno. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or however you listen to the show. You can find us on social media at Stupid Fly Media. And if you really want to get down, go to stupid-fly.com. There you can learn about us and get you some Stupid Fly merchandise. We'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era. 